0: Our next guest is uh, going to talk to us a little bit about student uh, admission tests, the old SAT. In fact, yes, they're still around. And the article that he and his colleagues published recently at theconversation.com is entitled University Admission Tests Like the SAT Are Under Scrutiny especially in the age of COVID-19. The lead author of this is Professor Louis Volante from the Department of Education at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. Professor Volante, Louis, good morning and welcome. Good morning to you. Good morning to your listeners. Uh, Well, it's great to have you with us, sir. Let's talk a little bit about the types of tests that you and your colleagues address in this article and that you insist are under scrutiny, the SAT. How common is a university admission test of any sort in Canada these days?
1: Well, it's not used uh, in Canada for admissions purposes. Most of the uh, provinces are relying heavily on teacher grades in order to um, look at admittances into the various programs. Of course, each of the provinces also has uh, different provincial assessment programs. And in some cases, those uh, provincial assessment programs could be used as graduation requirements. So um, it depends on the province. But in some cases, we do use standardized tests um, in order to um, certify whether a student has completed uh, secondary school.
0: Indeed, and uh, I was just going to say, because we do have, there are certain testings, uh, standard testing that occur uh, at the grade 10 level and grade 12, and, and the, uh, so these are the metrics that Canadian post-secondary education uh, institutions use in place of the SAT results.
2: Well, I, I
1: wouldn't say that they're metrics in the sense that they're using them to to make um, distinctions amongst students, but it does. They do need to satisfy that as a requirement. Okay, right? sure. So, so in the case of BC, um, that has been suspended. Obviously, in Ontario, those have been suspended because of COVID. Mm-hmm. So, even even in the absence of student admissions tests in Canada, we are seeing because of COVID that um, it it has had a significant impact on provincial assessment programs. Now, in the United States, um, it's having a much more significant impact because those tests, depending on the university and the state you're applying to, could be uh, extremely important in terms of granting admittance and the other thing I would mention to your your listeners is there there is a significant percentage of students that do go to the United States oh, yeah. for post secondary um, about uh, twenty five thousand. Now, obviously, in the grand scheme of things, that's a small number, but um, those students would definitely be impacted by what's taking place south of the border.
0: Indeed, and it's it's interesting, Professor Volante, because the whole concept of student aptitude tests south of the border has taken an absolute thrashing in the last year with the scandals coming out of Stanford and other Pricey schools, who's uh, uh, who? Well, we've seen that we've seen. People are in jail still because of this bribery and corruption at both ends. Somebody on the school is taking the money and letting these students in who shouldn't be there, according to whatever standards exist. Uh, So we're we're probably more aware of those university admissions tests in America than anybody in America would would appreciate right now. But it's probably really healthy that we are, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, when we talk about the
1: the admission scandal in the United States, it really brought to the forefront the, the problems with um, using a single measure to determine whether a student will be admitted into a university or not? I mean, uh, it, it, we don't have that system in Canada, thankfully. But there's there's so many other issues to that we could get into, and I, I'm sure we could spend hours talking about it. Like, for instance, the the whole notion of legacy spots mm-hmm. uh, that exist in the United States for your listeners. That basically means that a certain percentage of first year applicants are. Admitted into the program because they are the children of alumni, yes, and often, often that means that those alumni have contributed significant sums of money to the university. We don't have anything even closely remote, remotely similar to that in 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 Canada. We do have, um, we do, you know, for all the blustering about, you know, um, um, the land of opportunity certainly, it's very difficult to to discount the fact that you know some students are getting into programs simply because uh, they might have built a building for the university or given millions of dollars, so I'm glad we don't
0: have that in Canada. We do, however, and you just to kind of open the door there, Louis, because you were talking about uh, specific groups and specific uh, eligibility avenues for students. The alumni, uh, the legacy uh, aspect being just one, but and we don't necessarily have that to that extent here in canada but what we do have in canada uh is uh our quotas we do have some universities uh, and other post-secondary institutions now giving co- special consideration to groups or re- uh, students representing certain groups within society that are encouraged to be uh, uh brought along into post-secondary activity
1: yeah I, I certainly um there are um there are institutions across canada that well that will try to uh, have as much as possible a representative group of students right. within the university um but for your listeners out there i mean i'm not going to i'm not going to side you know i'm not going to avoid this issue but i do want your listeners to understand one one quick fact about canada We are the first country in the world to get through, uh, get past a threshold called universal access. What universal access means is essentially fifty percent or more of our student population is going to post-secondary. Now, in in Canada, sorry, um, in the world, we're number one. Mm. So we're number one in that regard. Okay. So we we do need to we do need to put the that particular issue in perspective, we have a significant amount of students going on to post-secondary. So any suggestion to the fact that certain groups are, you know, being unfairly treated in terms of admissions, I I think would be an erroneous assumption to make. I mean, the reality is if if a student is deserving, they they will have that opportunity to go to post-secondary. And, of course, There are special grants, there's special scholarships that would be available um, depending on the institution to help um, underrepresented and underprivileged
0: students. Professor Volante, are there any other countries in the world like America that continue to require university or post-secondary admission testing prior to uh, acceptance?
1: Well, I mean... You know, the United States is not the forerunner when it comes to university admissions tests, in the sense, from a historical point of view. I mean, there are other countries that have been using standardized tests for these purposes. Of course, you know, the the problem with the SATs in the United States are well documented. Uh, If you look at the history of them, they were essentially part of the process in actually developing the test. They used a, a very specific model called item response theory in today's terms it was called something different back then but sure. it was designed to keep particular groups of students out of university mm-hmm. black students jewish students italian students you can look at the history oh, yeah. of the SAT itself right um, now let's go across the pond to the to the united kingdom they have a level exams which are extremely important and decide whether a student um, uh, that and those exams are used for deciding and their standardized tests that are used to decide whether a student is Uh, has the merit in in terms of going on to post-secondary. So those are really high-stakes assessments
0: as well. Our guest joining us from Brock University and the Faculty of Education is Professor Louis Volante. He and a few colleagues wrote a piece a few days ago entitled University Admissions Tests Like the SAT Are Under Scrutiny, Especially in the Age of COVID-19. Professor Volante has been kind enough to uh, identify the fact that here in Canada, we don't do a lot of that anymore. In the United States, It's still very much de rigueur, and of course we know how corrupt these processes can become with the uh, admission scandals uh, at uh, several major prestigious American schools. And just before we broke for the news, Louis was talking about the origins of SATs, and of course they go back to the UK and England in the 1800s. The question, though, Louis, as I started to ask, and you were uh, kind enough to again walk us through the process, is are there countries still uh, outside of america conducting sats as a as a uh, conduit to post-secondary education yeah
1: and, and the one point that i had made uh before the break was that the a-level exams in the united kingdom are, uh, are they're fairly high stakes so students complete those a-level exams and uh, they will be used uh, to determine whether a student um they would be used as the basis for admittance sure. into post-secondary institutions. So, I mean, the the SATs have been around since the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Even in Canada, we um, Edgar Ryerson um, over 130, 40 years ago proposed admissions test, uh, uh, sorry, secondary test to certify student competence. So, standardized testing has been around for a long time, but. Globally, um, there it is a mis- mismatch. Like it, it depends really on the country. But what I would say though, uh, one one thing we do find is the higher the stakes attached to the test, the more likely you are to see teachers teach to that test. Yeah, uh, which would in fact narrow the curriculum, right? So if you're testing math and English and science, then you might focus on those three areas of the curriculum to the exclusion of other areas.
0: Yeah, good point. So that
1: that. That's a fairly robust trend that we know um, we've, we've uh, observed that cross nationally.
0: You know, and Louie, it, it, you can break it out of the academic realm and see it as commonly and as frequently as the neighborhood driving school right there in St. Catharines. Nine times out of ten, you will go to that school. They're going to teach you how to pass the test. They're not going to teach you how to drive. They're going to teach you how to pass the Blinken test. So you pass the test and away you go. Uh, you don't really know how much uh, much about driving, but you got your license. And that's a very small example of what you're talking about, right? Well, absolutely. And I mean, if you think about
1: the same company that developed the SAT, the Educational Testing Service, in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, they're, they're, they're responsible for the GMAT, the Graduate Management Admissions Test, the GRE, the Graduate Record Examination, the LSAT, the Law School Admissions Test, the MCAT, the Medical Admissions Test as well. And I mean, students will pay money for a preparatory course. And of course, they're learning how to be successful on the test. Mm -hmm. So uh, the predictive validity of these measures deteriorates when you have a certain group of students that have access to test prep versus others. And that's a point that we mentioned in the, the article. So imagine two different students in the United States. One is quite poor, doesn't have the wherewithal to have private tutoring or additional help to help them prepare for the SAT, and another one that does. So even when we think about the admission scandal, we put that aside. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the field isn't necessarily level, right, when we think about how those two students can prepare and be successful on that mm-hmm.
0: measure. So how then uh, do you go about, uh, because in Canada, we don't have that sort of national standardized testing. And I guess the big proponents of, of this continue, Louis, to talk about uh, the, the need for standardization, because of course it makes the selection process so much easier. But the uh, and we don't have it in Canada, and you've, you've gone to great lengths to identify the process that we've replaced it with in this country. So what, uh, and I'm specifically I'm interested in how COVID has disrupted the process of uh, screening for universities, if you will, across the board, regardless of testing procedures uh, that are at hand? Yeah, let's put uh, testing aside.
1: We have a significant swath of students that have been that have had to switch very quickly from a face-to-face instruction to online learning you right bet, yeah. that goes that goes without saying now it depends on the province but most students have returned back to school at least on a part-time basis who knows what that's going to look like in the next 2-3 weeks if these numbers continue to rise unabated it's entirely possible for students to have to move to an online format only yep. what we do know what well, what i can say and what your listeners need to recognize is what we do know across secondary schools as well as universities, there are a significant number of universities and a significant number of school districts that have moved away from testing as a measure to determine grades, going um, whether it's in high school and also in university. So for instance, there are some universities that have said, even though there are proctoring services that exist where we can Um, You know, use eye tracking um, software to make sure if the student's not um, cheating during an online test. Some universities have wholeheartedly said we're not going to do that. So we've moved away from traditional assessment measures, tests, exams, quizzes, to more authentic assessment approaches, projects, um, you know, portfolios, et cetera, et cetera.
0: And uh, going forward, uh, is this because, I mean, COVID has been a game changer and continues to be, and it's far from over. So how do you think at the end of all of this, and one assumes a successful vaccine program will end this eventually, what's a what's the post-secondary admissions uh, program going to look like, say, a year from now, assuming by that time the majority of the population is, is in a position to be vaccinated?
1: Well, Universities Canada, or AUCC as it was formerly known, um, and, and there are provincial uh, bodies that deal with higher education. Almost all of them have come out and said that they will work with whatever school districts provide them with. Okay, so sure. It, what, you know, a uh, high school in British Columbia, if they submit grades to the university, they will tr- take them at face value, and they won't make any adjustments based on the fact that the student might have done that class face-to-face. Um, half-time face-to-face or completely online. True. Because there are a significant group of students that have opted not to even return to classrooms, yep. right? So, I mean, what the new normal will be, I don't have a crystal ball. Mm. Um, I, I will I will tell you that I suspect when this is all done, even, even with a vaccine, there are going to be um, school districts investing more resources in time and looking into making online learning a more engaging sort of experience for students because the the threat of uh, another pandemic will be a little bit more fresh in our minds. So I suspect that schools across the world, not just Ontario or Canada or British Columbia, you know, I said Ontario because I live in Ontario. I, I, I suspect school districts And uh, regions around the world are going to start investing a lot more money into thinking about how they can make online
0: learning a little bit more engaging. Well, th- there's there's no question about that a lot. Of, well, everybody in the equation has been caught flat-footed. Some, uh, the, the, here's the buzzword, some have pivoted more quickly and more capably than others. But again, it's there's no standardization available yet, although that's coming. It, it, it's amazing what we're doing on the fly here, but you're quite right. I think if we're going to go forward with any kind of significant element of online uh, in the learning process, especially post-secondary, it's got to it's got to get a lot better fast, don't you think?
1: Absolutely. And I also do think that there are going to be companies all over the place clamoring for market share here. So we do we do need to be careful here. We do need, uh, you know, taxpayers are paying for education, publicly funded education. Yep. So there, there should be an assurance that if we adopt one program over another, that that program that we're adopting has more is more effective or um, has more advantages for the teachers and students and parents that are impacted by that. So I do think that this shouldn't be lost in the mix, that we do need to have rigorous evaluation procedures in place. Good. And we need to justify why we're spending millions of dollars on one platform versus another, because we're paying for this.
0: Indeed, we are. A great article. Congratulations to you and the team to put it together. Our guest is Professor Louis Volante from the Department of Education at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. We commend his article to your, uh, your attention. It's at theconversation.com, and it's entitled, University Admissions Tests Like the SAT Are Under Scrutiny, Especially in the Age of COVID-19. Louis Volante, thanks for joining us. We must do this again sometime, sir. It was very enjoyable. Thank you. Take care. Have a good Saturday. You too. Louis Volante in St. Catharines, Ontario. Brad West is joining us. Mr. West is the mayor of Port Coquitlam, and he's here to talk to us this morning about regional officials like him and many others in municipalities surrounding the city of Vancouver and their concerns over these proposed road tolls or mobility pricing that staff at City Hall in Vancouver are currently considering. Mayor West, Brad, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. Let's talk a little bit about for the benefits early Brad. so let's let's back <laughs> let's back up to step sure. one here and and remind our listeners what exactly we're talking about here. what on earth or what do you understand mobility pricing to mean? Sure well,
3: there's a couple things here. Um, back in 2017 the previous TransLink mayor's council uh, commissioned a report, a study, to look at mobility pricing for the metro vancouver region and it came back with a report that said um, yeah mobility pricing is uh is an interesting concept and it might be a great idea and it could take a number of different forms it could include uh, charging people for the kilometers they drive in a year." It could include charging people when they cross uh, certain regional boundaries. Mm-hmm. It could include charging people at so-called congestion points without the region. And it kind of laid out these various scenarios. Um, that report was kind of put on the shelf, and it's been collecting dust there ever since, which, in my opinion, is where it belongs. <laughs> okay. uh, but there have been people who, over uh, the last couple of years, have tried to bring it off that shelf and resurrect it. Uh, and, and then in the midst of that kind of happening, you had, uh, as I understand, the city of Vancouver staff come forward with a report that said, well, we're going to look at doing uh, the same type of thing, more on the, uh, um, the regional boundary piece, and, and charge people if they were to... Pass certain boundaries coming into the city of Vancouver
0: right, and um, so yesterday, the update on all of this is the mayor of Vancouver, he who is responsible for said staff uh, researching this possibility uh, does fess up at a speech that's uh, basically the city does not have the power to enact these tolls if indeed they were to go forward with it they require provincial authorization and then we're into a whole other ball game brad because as i recall uh very recently we've had a provincial election here which saw the ndp returned with a huge majority this the party that canceled the tolls on the golden ears and portman bridge i suspect there's not a great deal of appetite for tolls what do you think
3: no i think you're right i think it's Uh, dead on arrival. And, you know, I'm not sure why that was just discovered in Vancouver. That's not really breaking news to the rest of us. We've known for some time that if anything was ever going to happen on this front, it would require the approval of the provincial government. And they've been quite clear, as you said, that uh, it's not on from their perspective. You know, when you look at the majority government that they just achieved, Uh, That majority was built in the suburbs of Metro Vancouver. They had a historic breakthrough in uh, the Fraser Valley. They swept all the seats out in the Tri-Cities and the northeast sector of the Metro Vancouver region where I am. And, And, you know, and these are the people who would be most impacted by mobility pricing, which is, you know, uh, what has really informed my opposition, you know, sometimes politicians need to learn to just let bad ideas die right. and, and and stop trying to bring them back, you know, as, as a, some form of a cash grab over and over again. The reality, in my opinion, is this. First and foremost, we've already paid for our transportation infrastructure. People have paid for roads and bridges through their income tax, through gas tax, Carbon tax through a, a variety of taxes and fees that we pay that uh, go towards both the construction and the maintenance of this infrastructure. Right. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Second is you know if if you approach it as the city of Vancouver has done from well we need to do this because we need to force people out of their vehicles right. because we need to reduce our carbon footprint. Uh, and, you know, my response to that, and I think this would be echoed by many people throughout Metro Vancouver, especially outside of the city of Vancouver, is, okay, great, out of my vehicle and into what?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, where are the realistic options? If you're someone who's living in Port Coquitlam, you know, there's no SkyTrain out here. Uh, bus service is, is inadequate. And so, you know, ex- ex- exactly how are you supposed to... You know, do what you got to do in a day. How are you supposed to get to work? How are you supposed to get your kids dropped off at school? Uh, Maybe pick them up later to take them to, you know, hockey or soccer or dance, karate, whatever it is. Like the the folks who come up with these type of ideas, I think are just so horribly disconnected from the reality of life. For most
0: people in this region. And I suppose many of them would say, well, you, you've just missed my point here. The whole point is to raise money to provide the sort of transportation uh, funding to fill those gaps that you've just so clearly identified. I'm in the same situation, Brad. I live in New Westminster. I'm a big SkyTrain fan. I take it whenever I can. But I can't when I come to work on the weekends because there's no SkyTrain running at the time I need to catch it to get downtown. I have no option but to... To drive, and I'm not the only guy in the, in this town that is in the same situation. I would happily take public transportation, would uh, were that it uh, was available to me in a timely way. So that, uh, but you can't. That, that's cart before the horse. If you're if you're if you're raising all sorts of money to build trans uh, transportation infrastructure <laughs> to provide people an option for not driving in, it's it's the reverse, Brad. It's it's of what's happening.
3: Uh, absolutely, you know, when they point to places like Singapore and London, or and these are the two that are most frequently pointed to mm-hmm. as areas where mobility pricing or congestion charges, road pricing, has been introduced, and they say, "Oh, it's been it was so warmly received by the public, and everyone likes it." Um, well, it, you know, it, it's just such an asinine comparison because we don't have anywhere near the transit. Uh, public transportation infrastructure of, of those two cities. True. And both of those cities had those in place before they introduced uh, this pricing scheme. And so it is cart before the horse. Uh, and, you know, it really requires the region to, I think, prioritize, you know, where the investments should be. There's a lot of talk right now about uh, a extension of SkyTrain to UBC. Yep. Um, that... Is you know somewhere in the neighborhood of an eight billion dollar project. Um, at the same time, you have a massive increase in population happening eastward, happening in the Tri Cities, mm-hmm. in the Maple in Maple Ridge, in Pitt Meadows, in Langley, in Surrey. Uh, you know because of those affordability issues that I think many people, you know, are very familiar with, you've got more and more people, more and more families moving into the eastern suburbs of Metro Vancouver. Right. Uh, And so... And the transportation people are
0: spending billions building in the wrong direction.
3: That's basically my concern. (laughs) Right. You know, so, like, again, um, you know, I, I appreciate some people say, well, we need to do this because we need to generate revenue. The ironic thing about all of this is... Part of this kind of uh, mad dash to try and come up with money is because uh, people are driving less, and accordingly, uh, government is getting less money from gas tax than they used to. But. The, the irony is that that was the whole point, that, you know, that was part of wh- why they introduced the carbon tax that's and right. why they've increased the gas tax. You're like, oh, the theory is you make it more punitive, more cost prohibitive, and then people will drive less. And that's a good thing for the environment. Uh, the, 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 again, the irony here is now they go, oh, crap. People are driving less. We're getting less money from the gas tax. We have to find some sort of replacement for it. So now that's part of the the rationale behind, uh, mo- quote, mobility pricing Absolutely. is a replacement for declining gas tax revenues. And, so, you know, it, it, it's just like an insatiable sort of appetite. Uh, and at the end of the day, it, it seems like People just can't
0: get a catch a break. And Brad, were it not for the fact that the money they're looking for is, going, is still in our pockets, uh, it would actually be laughable. Brad West is with us. Mr. West is the mayor of Port Coquitla. We're talking mobility pricing, and Brad, last weekend we had the head of the president, rather, of the New Car Dealers Association of BC on with us, talking about this very thing. And he, to be, he tried really hard to be kind, and so the best he could do was the people behind all of this need to be more reality-based. I thought that was clever and very generous. Uh, the point being, though, that uh, as you pointed out today, this is unrealistic. Period. So, is there a realistic solution to raising more funds for transit infrastructure to try to convince more of us to, to take public transportation into the city of Vancouver where we earn our livelihoods.
3: Well, yes, there are. And I, I think the first thing we need to understand is, is there's no silver bullet. And, you know, we're going to have to manage our expectations as well. Um, there's a lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda yeah. it from the past. And, you know, and I have, you know, I'm a, I'm a new mayor and there's lots of things that I wish, you know, we had done differently uh, throughout the history of the region. But we are where we are. Uh, and it's about how we move forward. And so I, I think it's going to take uh, a number of things coming to the table. The reality is, if you look at the projects that have been built in the past, uh, inevitably, um, they get built because a senior level of government decides that they're going to get it done. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that has been the history in Metro Vancouver. And so you know, I think, obviously, it, it's still taxpayer money, of course, but uh, provincial and federal contributions uh, to getting projects done is going to have to form the the bulk of funding uh, to be able to uh, move forward and bring these to fruition. Um, now, federal government, provincial government are spending, you know, gobs of money right now. Yes. Uh, and. You know They're also looking at how they continue to spend gobs of money as part of uh, an economic recovery. Um, building transit infrastructure uh, puts a lot of people to work. And so I think there's a case to be made there that we should be articulating very strongly, and we have been, that they need to step up and provide funding there. Um, that takes you part of the way, and then you've got to look at other things. So it's going to be a combination of uh, the the revenues that – uh, TransLink already receives is going to be looking at uh, at fares and that's a delicate balance because mm-hmm. you need to, you know, be able to be getting an, enough out of fares while not going swinging too far that it becomes cost prohibitive and people say, no, I'm not going to take it because it's too expensive. Sure. Um, and also, you know, one of the things that I think TransLink should be very closely looking at uh, is something called Land Value Capture. And, you know, this is not some harebrained scheme. (laughs) This is done in in all sorts of jurisdictions in the world. Um, And and what it says is, look, we have seen in our region uh, a tremendous increase in the value of land. And when the developer uh, builds a, a high rise, that is next to a SkyTrain station, or, uh, or in the, the instance of, say, Broadway, is going to have a, broad, uh, a SkyTrain subway come along those properties. Yep. What does that investment of transit infrastructure do to the properties? It sends the value sky-high, and we've seen this everywhere throughout Metro Vancouver. The most expensive places you can buy are the ones that are adjacent to a SkyTrain
0: station. Almost out of so, time here, Brad. So do you want to yep. ta- put a tax on uh, special developments where their proximity to uh, transit is, uh, is what it's about?
3: Essentially, I say the region's taxpayers need to get a return on their investment. So if the rest of us help build a SkyTrain along Broadway and it sends the value of those properties sky high, it seems to me there's some logic in, in having those developments, those high-rises, then contribute to the the cost and of that transit investment.
0: So, Interesting.
3: Um, so. There's w- way more to it, but maybe at another time we can uh, we can chat about it. Well,
0: thanks for arranging our next date, Mr. Mayor. I appreciate that very <laughs> much. Brad West joining us from uh, Port Coquitlam this morning. We appreciate it, Brad. Thanks for getting up early. It is also November 14th, World Diabetes Day, and we are taking advantage of this designation to welcome Dr. Tom Elliott to our program this morning. Dr. Elliott is the medical director for BC Diabetes. He's also on the board of directors of variety the children's charity dr tom elliott good morning sir welcome
2: good morning sterling it's exciting
0: to be on your show well it's great to have you with us dr tom tell us uh, i'm type two how many canadians like me have diabetes in one form or another
2: close to two million
0: that's a significant number uh, of that Uh, What is the proportion type 1, the more serious uh, form of the disease, versus type 2?
2: So type 1 makes up about 10%. So 200,000 is a fairly conservative estimate of the number of type 1s. So 1.8 million type 2s, 200,000 type 1s.
0: Now, they talk about something, in, in my case, it didn't happen until um, later in life, and so I had was diagnosed with what is called adult-onset diabetes. Uh, but this is not a disease that uh, it waits. Uh, it, it can strike anyone at any time. What percentage of people who have diabetes in Canada, for example, Dr. Elliott, are kids? Uh,
2: good question, Sterling. I'm going to have to do some rapid calculations. Oh, just let's, ballpark let's say, it. Well, let's say... Mm. 20,000 type 1s, which type 2 is uncommon in kids because, uh, you know, the main cause of type 2 diabetes is getting older and getting wider. Right. Most of us us get wider as we get older. Um, In in children, there are some kids who have rare, rare genetic defects, but it's the ones who are wider and less physically active and have poor diets who get type 2.
0: Is diabetes something that is genetic? If dad had it or mum had it, is it likely that I am going to have it too?
2: It's going to increase the odds, but it's not uh, it's not a certainty. So, you know, if, 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 if one of your listeners uh, has a mum or dad or both who have diabetes and they're worried, um, it's really just a wake up for them to be to be uh, you know as lean and as physically fit as they can be to cut down on simple starches. So, you know, Sterling, I, we, I tell my patients that if, if they're planning to eat something that's white, as long as it's ca- not cauliflower, then they should be having only a small portion of it. So cut down on simple starches, on white food in general, um, get get physically active, and, and if you're overweight, work on a, you know, a strategy to, to lose weight. We love intermittent fasting at, at BC Diabetes. Telling.
0: oh really intermittent so really controlling the intake uh, on a on a tightly monitored basis then that's what that sounds like
2: yeah it is so so, so it's, it's the commonest form is what's called restricted time eating um i follow a, a program monday to friday where i don't eat until after midday and i have i have an eight hour window in which i can eat so between midday and 8 p.m is my eating time and if it's if it's not there then i'm not eating i mean it's, it's kind of strict, but it's, it's very simple. And there's, there's, no, there's no limit to what I can eat during those eight hours. I try to cut down on white food as well, even though I don't have diabetes because I think it's good for me.
0: Right. Uh, when, I, when I went to uh, the, when I, I was, I was kind of shocked when I, when I found out because I didn't know what I had. And uh, my doc pulled me aside and said, well, you know, we've been doing these tests and guess what? You've got type 2 diabetes and I didn't know how to react. So I thought, oh my God, oh no. <laughs> so he said, well, you better go to this course at the local hospital at Peace Arch in White Rock. So I go and there's two, uh, there are two women conducting the course. One is a dietitian one's a nurse. And they, they were fabulous. They, they really just brought everything into focus and brought it down to practical, two feet on the ground, uh, dealing with it in a realistic way. The nurse, for example, was just talking about what you are talking about, controlling your, your eating. And, and the dietitian said, you know, it's because one person asked, so does this mean I can't have sugar again for the rest of my life? <laughs> and, and the dietitian said, no, it's, it's not poison, it's sugar. You just have to learn how to control it because if you don't, it could be poison or close to it. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, you got you got really good advice, Sterling. I, I have one more thing to add. When when people are, are, are told they have type two diabetes, you know, I, we we think of diabetes as being a condition, not a disease. Right. Because we have all we have all the necessary tools to to control it. You know, it's like managing a household budget. Uh, you know, managing your finances, a mortgage. We, you've just got to think about it and get it right. Mm-hmm. And, you know. The, Right now, the doctors and the nurses are smarter than they've ever been. We've got fantastic medication and devices. I hope, I hope we have time to talk about devices, Sterling. And you know, the other thing that I, that I didn't mention is having a peaceful mind. We know that, that the more anxious we are, that that drives up the hormones that counteract uh, insulin. So, the, the more stressed out we are, the the worse control our diabetes is. So. So we want a peaceful mind as well, and you know, I, I, every people have their own spiritual practices. I, I recommend meditation, using a, a secular app called Headspace. It's hmm. very helpful.
0: Interesting. Uh, you you mentioned devices. Uh, certainly, the continuous glucose monitor would be one of the most important devices anyone with diabetes has. Correct, Doctor Elliot? Oh, Sterling, These these
2: devices. Are, uh, the the abbreviation is CGM, continuous glucose monitors. They have transformed diabetes practice at, at, at my office at BC Diabetes, and they've changed the lives of tens of thousands of Canadians and British Columbians who are using them. The, 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 the cheapest one is called the Freestyle Libre. You can get it at Costco for eighty-nine bucks. Right. I'm working. I'm working hard on the Minister of Health, Adrian Dix, who's a who's a BC Diabetes client. Uh, he lives with type one diabetes, and he's promised me that the province is going to cover these devices sooner rather than later. I'm hoping it's gonna be before the end of March, 2021. These devices measure your sugar every five minutes. And you can, if you put it on, you can see very clearly the effect of the dietary choices you make, the exercise you do or you don't do, the effect of your emotions for women, the effect of period, their their menstrual period, all sorts of things that that, that we didn't know affect our sugar. So some of the things we, we obviously can't control directly but we can take measures to to uh, to help so that might be medication it might be a more aggressive diet like we've talked about or it might be insulin so whatever it takes the 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 wherewithal is out there and you just have to connect yourself with a diabetes team that can give you good
0: advice now this device this is the one that's advertised on television it looks like about the size of a quarter and typically on tv the person is wearing it on the back of his or her arm and uh you, you know you see them swimming and carrying on and having a normal life and every now and then they take the smartphone and uh, uh, puts it up against this device and they take a reading is that what you were talking about here that's the
2: one sterling and okay that, you know that, that's that's the entry-level one there are fancier ones and and there are ways of sharing your, your your sugar values with with your loved ones and care team. There's a, there's an app called Night Scout that's fantastic to uh, to add to this and
0: Quick and, quick and, question and, for and like. Dr. Tom. How does the darn thing stay on? Every time I see the commercial, I go, "Gee, does that have a like a spike in it? They stick it into your arm. Is it got glue on the back of it? How does uh, how does it stay uh, attached to you?"
2: It's got extremely good glue. Sir.
0: Okay, okay.
2: I mean, if if if, you know you you've you've got a desk job, so do I. But if you're out, you know, if you're a a tradesman or a uh, you know a woman working out in the in, in the community where it might get brushed, you can stick it down with with additional tape. Sure. Um, there there are lots of them on the market. So so. These things stay on if you look after
0: them. Indeed. Now, Doctor Elliot, uh, one uh, final question to you, and I get you I get you to change hats here because as a board uh, officer with Variety, the Children's Charity, you have a way to help BC families, especially those dealing with diabetes and other issues, to um, to to purchase some of these uh, bits of equipment and devices that are so um, essential in in controlling the situation. So, talk to us about Variety for a second, Doctor Elliot, and the and how they help out
2: well variety sterling i know that you've been uh, you, you do some of their charity events it's a fantastic children's charity sure is and they they receive donations from around the province and they decide how to 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 use those donations they have a program now supporting cgm so if if if, if you know of a child under the age of 18 who has type 1 diabetes uh Please apply to, to the, to Variety to get a subsidy. Good. And providing, providing that you, you meet the, um, the financial requirements, it's a net family income of under 65k, then you will receive a free Dexcom, that's, that's the Cadillac, that's the very best, uh, device that's out there, uh, at no charge for one year. And if we can keep the, the money rolling in, it'll be renewed the next year. I want to give a fantastic shout out to Dave Letty and his family who've given huge donations to Variety to support the, uh, the CGM program.
0: Well, indeed, and, and, uh, and uh, we uh, tip our hat in that general direction as well, Dr. Elliott. Thank you so much for being with us today. It is World Diabetes Day, sir, and we do appreciate you getting up a little early to help us understand things a little more clearly. Thanks a lot, Dr. Tom. Thanks so watching. A pleasure, sir. Uh, BC uh, Diabetes uh, Medical Officer, Dr. Tom Elliott, joining us this morning on World Diabetes Day. According to the Associated Press, the Electoral College vote stands this morning at 306 for Joe Biden, 232 for Donald Trump. That number, 306, by the way, is the number that Donald Trump achieved four years ago when he defeated Hillary Clinton. That was his Electoral College total. It's looking pretty darn convincing. So in the 60-plus days remaining, what is Mr. Trump going to do besides legal appeals? And the headline this morning on CNN, Trump had a very bad Friday in court with his election cases. They're headed for more action next week. So what on earth is there left for them to do? And then what about the president's ability to pardon himself? We thought we'd ask Professor Jeff Myers these enticing questions. Jeff Myers is a professor of law at Thompson University, Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. We started getting to know Jeff when he was teaching law at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Welcome back, Professor Myers. It's great to have you on the show.
5: Oh, it's good to be on with you, Sterling. It's been far too long.
0: Indeed it has. So the legal actions so far that the Trump team scattered in various jurisdictions across the the United States have Mm -hmm. been, they've attempted to have election results overturned, uh, uh, listing complaints of fraudulent voter activity, and judge after judge after judge is just tossing this stuff out the front door.
5: I mean, you really said it all. I mean, this is exactly what's happening. So there's been this strategy to contest the 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 election votes. In some cases, it it involved going into the courts and asking that certain ballots be set aside and not voted, or that because and and not uh, counted counted separately Mm -hmm. because there had been applications before the election. Uh, In other cases, it involved you know making these attacks based that were baseless. There was no evidence to support them. And over the last few days, but over the last few weeks. Judges in, you know, all kinds of judges, whatever their uh, political stripes have been have been kicking these uh, these cases out of court because there's just no evidence. They're just they're basically, you know, harassing lawsuits. And in fact, some of the law firms who do the legal work for the Trump campaign are are, are one of them recently left is, you know, um, dumped him as a client because these these law firms are getting collateral damage on their other clients for sure. acting to undermine democracy. So these, the, the legal case is, is non-existent. This is not a situation like 2000 where there's a very, very tightly contested uh, race and then there's a, a, a rec- an automatic statutory recount which is triggered. And, you know, this is not what's happening. This is a, a large, a significant margin win. Increasingly, more and more states... The outcome of all of these phony lawsuits, even if they had total validity and the remedies that Mr. Trump were seeking, a.k.a. the elimination of certain ballots, non-certification in some states, Mm -hmm. was successful. He still wouldn't surpass the threshold at this point. So there's no legal, there's no real legal case that's going to materialize into anything. And he had by appointing the judges he did to the Supreme Court, he put the, places, the pieces in place to make certain arguments had this been close or a situation like 2000. But that is not the case here.
0: Well, it's interesting because he has, uh, since particularly the, uh, the appointment of Justice Bar- Madam Justice Barrett uh, in the last mm-hmm. few weeks, he's actually expressed a great deal of satisfaction with the population of the Supreme Court uh, intimating in the same uh, statement that it should push come to shove. His people were now in a position to help him out uh, in, in his hour of need. But it's not going to get to that point, is it?
5: Look, if he reproduced the Gore versus Bush situation, and this was a very, very closely attacked, uh, um, closely you know fought race in terms of the electoral college in a swing state like Florida, you know, there's there's reasons to believe based on the fact that, for example, judges like Amy Coney Barrett and um, even John Roberts, who he didn't appoint, but also Neil Gorsuch, who he appointed, yes, and Kavanaugh worked on the the uh, well, not Kavanaugh though. These guys, I've the, seen these ones; uh, these other ones all worked on the Bush v. Gore. Oh, sure. Uh, Litigation team. Gotcha. I mean, there was, you know, and then again, the comments, of course, during the 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 confirmation uh, of of, uh, of uh, Amy Comey and then you're right, Kavanaugh, in a judgment that he'd made in Wisconsin beforehand, had suggested that you know there um, that uh, that 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 if if they allow the counting of ballots beyond election day, it could cause a reversal of the of the election results in Elena Kagan. Uh, Obama pointed to judge in the sense of what are you reversing election results? You haven't even counted all of them yet. So it was, and that was a moment everyone looked at and go, Wow, the Supreme Court is quite uh, positioned for a very serious battle on this. But we're never going to get there. That's not going to happen. Right. Yeah, it's just not—it's not the reality we should be living in.
0: So now the um, the uh, next big question, given that Mr. Trump, uh, as a civilian in January, will face uh, several um, litigious activities on a personal level with regard to taxes and so on, and, mm-hmm. there may, and there may be some allegations of impropriety while serving his term in office and so mm-hmm. on. Is mm-hmm. the pre- I don't know of any precedent. You're the you're the law professor here, mm-hmm. Mr. Myers. Is yeah. there any precedent for the united states yeah. president to issue yeah. a pardon to himself in no. advance of departure no no i don't think
5: this is look here's how i'm going to put it there is the only thing that i can tell you the re- only relevant legal document is the is 1974 office of the uh, legal counsel memo which basically says that this is improper and that no person and there's a long-standing though much more important look i teach a class in the rule of law one of the most axiomatic um, principles of the rule of law is that no person can be a judge in their own cause. Okay, okay. so um, Article Two of the Constitution, you know, is does permit the president this unreviewable power of, you know, granting pardon or clemency. Right. Um, one thing to be clear about is clemency or pardon. It does usually imply that the person's guilty of something. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's not. It's not. It, does, it means there's not going to be a criminal penalty, but it's not exactly an exoneration it's not the same thing but it doesn't make any sense it's illogical and i'm frankly illegal in every imaginable or rational way although again probably not reviewable but certainly illegal nominally and political politically untenable uh, to do that and and um uh, so that i think that's not going to happen i think there's a more likely scenario which i know you want to ask me about but this one i think is 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 just is, is is not going to happen? I think it's so far outside the
0: the realm of possibility, and it would just wouldn't be even a smart move. For him. Okay. So, what is the other likely possibility then, Jeff?
5: Well, the I don't know how likely it is, but it's possible, and it would make sense in some ways. If I was Trump's personal lawyer, I would be advising him to do this thing. And what that? Well, I wouldn't be advising him to do it as a quid pro quo. I'd be I'd be advising him to do it very carefully. But and that is that that he steps down and Mike Pence um, pardons him. Yeah,
0: the Nixon Ford deal. Yeah.
5: Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that's never been proven, right? So it's not like if there was a clear quid pro quo arrangement between the two, then potentially there would be federal bribery statutes, which would step in and which would apply to the president because public corruption laws do apply to presidents. So let's be clear that that would be a fraud path if it was a real quid pro quo. But if it was a matter of discretion or no, you know, understanding could be, you know, demonstrated, that would be the best thing, the smartest thing for him to do. It yeah. would
0: be the cleanest legal remedy if he were to step down and therefore be pardoned by his successor. But there's a
5: third possibility. And, and that would be what? <laughs> I can't. Sterling, I okay, got one minute. The third possibility is that Joe Biden, um, Joe Biden pardons him.
0: Oh, my. I'm glad I wasn't sipping on my coffee when you said that. Mm -hmm. I would have damaged the computer screen. Uh, I I suppose it is technically possible, but not likely. You don't think, huh? I don't know
5: about that. I don't know about that. He's looking to heal America. He's looking to move on. And if Uh he's going to do something like that, which would be very unpopular with his base. He's going to do it early on um and and there may be reasons you'll say it's a very difficult decision i'm you know it's not something i take lightly but i believe like in the interest of of healing but also do you want to have donald trump involved in the courts in litigation and depositions because by the way no matter what happens you know he's going to be out there out front or do you want him just you know quartered in you know mar-a-lago or wherever so well, that
0: there is you know. something i had not even considered a pardon of Trump by Biden. Well, there I go. Now you've got me chewing on that one for the whole day. Jeff, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for this provocative stuff, sir.
5: Thank you, Sterling. It's great being on. We'll chat again soon. I
0: hope. You bet. Professor Jeffrey Myers from Thompson Rivers University Law School.